remember being in that season when everything is new, everything's exciting, it's a season of electricity, and you're kind of reading the signs, right? You know, is she looking at me? Uh, it, it, did he sit in that seat because he wants me to notice him? And there's just a season of firsts, the first date, the first time you hold hands, the first time you kiss, the first time you meet the parents, first time you meet the kids. And even if it gets all the way to the wedding, you're still in that everything is bliss, everything is dreamy, and that's a different kind of a season. And even when the minister utters the words, for better or for worse, you, you repeat it, but you're not really listening. You're just staring deeply into your lover's eyes and saying those words, but you're going, never could there ever be a worse, not with this strapping, hunky, Adonis of a man, and certainly not with this stunning, radiant, drop-dead gorgeous woman. In our marriage, there will be nothing but betters. But for those of us who live in reality, and not in a Disney movie, we know that there's no such thing as happily ever after, at least not in the way they portray it in the movies. That's why many people view marriage like flies view screen doors. Those on the outside all want to get in, and those on the inside all want to get out. Right? So we're starting this four-week series today called Happily Even After. And we're going to let the book of Ruth drive us. And the, Ruth, the book of Ruth is really, from beginning to end a story about the sovereignty of God, that he is in control, that he is the one who, he has a plan, and yet he gives us this thing called free will, that we can choose to walk with him or we can choose to walk without him. And it may seem strange to you to know, to hear me say that God has a plan for your love life. But he absolutely does. He's a plan for every facet of your life, but certainly also he has a plan for your love life. And he he wants your, your romance to be everything that you've ever dreamed it could be, but he says you need to follow me or you can go your own way. In the last week of this series, we're entitling the last week of the series called When God Writes Your Love Story. And I think you need to know two things about the author up front. In that he is sovereign, in that he is good. That God is sovereign, that these two attributes, that his sovereign and his goodness, they need to go hand in hand. That, we, that he is sovereign, that he is the ruler, that his, his lordship, he rules over all things, that nothing goes above God. Everything is under his command, including demons and angels and Satan and people. Everything is under his hand. But intimately connected to his sovereignty is the fact that God is good. That he is love. And he is merciful. He is slow to anger. 
He's patient. That God is forgiving. That God is full of grace. And many people will say, well, there's so much evil in the world. How do you balance that with the fact that God is good? And say, yeah, there is evil in the world. Satan is bad. Demons are bad. People, when left to our own devices, we will go our own way instead of following God. But God is good. And if we only take one of these two attributes... If we leave one behind and hold on to the other, we will get a very distorted and dangerous and unbiblical understanding of who God is. For instance, if we only take the fact that God is sovereign, when bad things happen in the world or to us, and we know that God is in control of it all, but he's not good, then what we're left with is this uncaring, vengeful God, which looks a lot like the old gods, ancient gods of Greek mythology, but doesn't look nothing like the God described in the Bible. And so as we study through the book of Ruth, I want you to do so through the lenses of God's sovereignty and goodness. And as you look at your own life, in your own love life, no matter what season you find yourself in today, you're going to see evidence of God's invisible sovereign hand and his goodness as he continues to write your love story. Now, before you understand the book of Ruth, you have to understand the book that precedes it. It's the book of Judges. And the book of Judges, it, it kind of wraps up with this last verse that describes, I think, the culture in America pretty well. It says, In those days Israel had no king, Everyone did as they saw fit. It's kind of like they were all making it up as they went along. They, they had their own sense of truth, their own sense of morality. Israel was a place in crisis, and the people were living in anarchy. The land of Israel, at this time, in the, land of, in the time of the judges... As it kind of ends the last verse there in Judges, it goes into the very first, book, very first verse of Ruth. It's a little bit like if we mash the worlds together of Mad Max and Pride and Prejudice, right? It's the post-apocalyptic earth and Mr. Darcy walks in, right? And Ruth 1 opens up in a famine, And we're introduced to a guy by the name of Elimelech. And Elimelech is a Jewish man from the town of Bethlehem. And Bethlehem means, it means house of bread. But in those days, there was no bread. And there there was a reason why the cupboard was bare in Israel at this time. See, the relationship between God's people, Israel, and God himself was a very cyclical relation at times. That there'd be a time of peace, everything was good, but then the people would rebel against God. They would choose to go their own way, and then God would send a punishment. It could be like a famine, to kind of wake the people up, to shake them up, to get their attention, to come back to him. And then they would cry out to God. They would repent of their sins. They would come back to him. And then God would forgive them. He'd restore their relationship. And there'd be a time of peace again until 
the people would rebel again and just keep going through this cycle over and over again. Well, then we come into, we meet Elimelech. He has a wife by the name of Naomi. And they have two adult sons, Malon and Chilion, and there's this famine. And it's only taking place in Israel. We don't get any evidence that it's taking place in any other country. So Elimelech has a decision to make, a dilemma. Should I stay or should I go now? If I go, there will be trouble. But if I stay, there will be double. So come on, let me know. Should I stay or should I go? Yeah, we have some Clash fans in third service. Well done. God loves you. It's good. And when he's done, when he's deter- he, he, he goes and packs his bags and leaves. He doesn't consult God at all in this. We don't get any evidence of that. He leaves, takes his family, and goes to this town called Moab. And this is how we know he's not following God because the Moabites were enemies of God's people. They were constant thorns in the sides of his people. And so they, you see Elimelech and his family choosing to side with the enemy instead of following God. And even further, Elimelech and Naomi, they allow their grown sons to marry Moabite women, which wasn't strictly forbidden by God, but strongly, strongly discouraged. It's like, like Buckeye fans marrying Wolverine fans. It just doesn't work. Parents are going, I failed in life. And, but this is where we meet Ruth. Malon marries Ruth, this Moabite woman, and, and Chilion marries another Moabite woman by the name of Orpah. And we're not privy to the information about how they meet. We're not given any evidence of that season of romance. And maybe they were like that couple we watched on the screen where their hearts are fluttering, the butterflies you know, going on, the palms are sweaty. Instead, we are thrust immediately into a much darker season. The betters have left the building and the worses come in the form of three funerals. Elimelech is the first to die. It it just happens so suddenly. We're not given any evidence of why. And Naomi is, is left with that question, why, God? And then the Bible says that they lived in that land for 10 years. And you have to read between the lines here, but it's pretty clear that neither Ruth nor Orpah were able to conceive children. And then after that, Ruth and Orpah's sons, Naomi's, or Naomi's sons, Ruth and Orpah's husbands, they die as well. So Elimelech moved his family from Bethlehem to save their lives And now he's dead, and his two sons are dead, and the family line is just about extinguished. Well, Naomi, the Bible says that she became very bitter. That she became exceedingly bitter. That she believed that God was punishing her. That he has raised his fist to her because they left Israel, because they allowed their sons, to marry these Moabite women that now God has said, I'm done with you and you, you deserve what you get. And she becomes exceedingly bitter. She chooses to stay bitter. And, and this is true. This is the, maybe a big idea for us today. Is that no matter what season of life that we find ourselves in, we always get to choose 
how we will respond. And as followers of Christ, we can either choose to walk by the flesh or to walk by the Spirit. We're able to choose, are we going to walk by faith and trust in God's sovereignty and trust in his goodness and follow him? Or am I going to walk by sight and put my trust in myself and try to figure it out all, 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 all in me? Well, then we see in verse 6 that Naomi hears that back home in Israel that the famine is done, that God has returned to his people. And so she says, I'm going to go back home. And, and the girls uh, pack up, Ruth and Orpah pack up their stuff, and they, they start traveling to go back to Bethlehem. And, but along the way, they, they, they veer off the exit, and they stop for coffee and a potty break, because it is three girls heading on a road trip. And then... Naomi, over coffee, I think, uh, she says to the girls, she says, listen, um, I have these, she says these four words that all guys have heard many, many times. We need to talk. And she says, listen, there is nothing back in Bethlehem for you. You need to go back to your home country. Get as far away from me as possible. God is angry at me. You could go back to your home country. He could still have a great love story for you there. But if you go back to, to Bethlehem, you will become an old, lonely, bitter widow just like me. Get away from me. Now, I think it's really important for you to understand a key part of Ruth. If you don't know this, you're going to miss a huge part of it. And that there's an ancient Israelite custom called the kinsman redeemer. It sounds a little archaic, it's a little, something you're not really familiar with, right? But here's what it means. Simple, simple as this. If you were an Israelite husband who happened to die without having a son, okay, you, you, you're, di- you're dead, you didn't have a son, your widow was not allowed to go marry again outside of the family. Matter of fact, she had to to marry the kinsman redeemer, a brother or a close relative of her deceased husband to give him a son so that his line, his family tree would continue on and on. So Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, listen, I'm too old to remarry. I don't have another son. If you came back and I was miraculously to meet somebody tomorrow and we were miraculously able to conceive and have a son, would you wait 20 years for him to grow up for you you to marry? And then there's two of you. There's only one of him. It kind of gets a little messy. You know, that's not going to work. And so she, in her bitterness, cannot see what God is doing. She misses it because if she was able to see clearly, she might be able to say, you know what, Elimelech, he had other family back in Bethlehem. And God maybe will will raise one of them up to marry Ruth and Orpah and and continue on the lines of of my family. But she's so blinded by her bitterness, she cannot see it, what God is going to do. And I think there's a major lesson there for all of us. That whether it's in your love life or in life in general, when things are hard, when there's a famine going on in yours, there's a tendency for us to get bitter about it and say, God, I don't see what you're doing. You're done with me. You're mad at me. And we're missing it, what God is doing. Matter of fact, in Naomi's life, matter of fact, he's the one who ended the famine and provided a way back home for her. He's the one who has provided a, a, a man named Boaz, who we're going to talk about next week, who Ruth is going to fall in love with. He's going to fall, spoiler alert. And 
But Naomi can't see it because of her bitterness. So her pep talk hit the mark with Orpah, and Orpah says, all right, girls, it's been fun. I'm out. I'm going back home to Moab. I'm going to have a love life there. See you later. But what is so heroic about Ruth is that even though Naomi has painted the darkest of futures, Naomi grabs her mother-in-law's hands and says, let's go. Let's go. Her commitment to God and to her mother-in-law is absolutely heroic. And listen, next week we're going to talk about the myth of the right one. That's our week two, the myth of the right one. And if you're single guy, single gal, marrieds, we're going to talk and look at what God, who, what kind of type of person he wants us to be with, but more importantly, the kind of person he wants us to be. And so I encourage you to make sure you come back for that week as well. But in Ruth, we see a major difference between how she responds in a season of tragedy between her mother-in-law, how she's in this dark pit of despair and bitterness, and Ruth is just like, you know what? I'm committed to God. I'm committed to, to my, to my mother-in-law, and, and that's what we need to be focused on. And I love the Bible. I love how the Bible gives us these real-life examples of people with real trouble, real problems, just like ours, that we can look at. But sometimes I think we need the flesh and blood more than just some pages on the, on the page. And so today I've asked to come out is my best friend and the love of my life. This is my wife, Janie, everybody. So welcome her to the stage. She's going to share about her story. So yesterday was an anniversary in my life. 23 years ago yesterday, I got married. I was fresh out of college and had big dreams, and I had the big 90s hair and the giant puff sleeves on my wedding dress to go with it. Now, if you've been around North Terrace for a while and you know Matt, you're doing the math and you're thinking, now, wait a minute, Matt was 15 or 16 at the time. That's very inappropriate for him to have been marrying a post-college age woman, and you'd be right. That would be very weird. But 22-year-old Janie married her college sweetheart. We got married, and we started our careers, and we launched into 11 years of marriage that would best be described as predictable. There wasn't anything glaringly wrong with the marriage. In fact, from the outside, it looked pretty good. We had good jobs. We had a really nice home. We were active in ministry. He was our small group leader and sang on the worship team. But behind the scenes, there wasn't much to it. It was pretty lifeless, nothing, nothing unexpected ever happened. At the time, I remember thinking that there wasn't something right. Surely there's more to life than coming home and eating dinner and watching TV. Surely God has a greater purpose for our lives. He wants to do more through us. But my humanness couldn't push past the mundane. I couldn't see that I was worthy of anything greater, able to do anything different. And so we settled for mediocrity, and we drifted along. And eventually we drifted apart. Then one day I was blindsided. We came home from church, and what seemed like out of nowhere came a conversation that changed everything. Right there over lunch, he confessed to have been having an affair for three years, and there have been others. 
And everything that I knew to be true broke down in that moment. How could somebody who I knew and trusted be so completely different from everything that I thought him to be? Even now, as I think about that day and the months that follow, I can recall the physical pain that came from that severed relationship. It felt like somebody had ripped the floor out from under me and just punched me in the gut over and over and over again. I can totally see how Naomi resorted to bitterness in her situation. Well, I prayed for the marriage and tried to reconcile, but there came a point when it became crystal clear that it was done. And so we signed the papers and we parted ways, and I have not seen that person since that day. So I found myself in a very unexpected place, alone. Only I wasn't, because our God is a great, big, gigantic God. And up until my divorce, I knew who God was. I'd read my Bible. I went to church. I hung out with other Christians. But I didn't know God. I didn't know how personal and real he wants to be and how active he wants to be in our lives. And I'm here to tell you that God took the hurt of that broken relationship, and he redeemed it. He helped me see how amazing life can be when you push past the limits of human perspective and look at all the possibilities from God's vantage point. God used three things in my life to help me change the way I look at things. And I wanted to share those with you today and bring you some encouragement through those. The first thing that God used in my life was his word. I think it's in our darkest times that our emotions tend to skew the way we look at things. And it's easy to see those emotions and those feelings and not see the truth in those. But God's word, the Bible, shines, it is the ultimate truth. And it shines truth into our situations. And it was in reading my Bible that I really was able to focus on facts instead of fiction. I can remember some of the darkest times when I felt so lonely and so afraid. And I would turn to the Bible, especially the Psalms, and I could almost audibly hear God say to me, I will not leave you. I will fight for you. You need only be still. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. I am with you. And it was in those times that I fell madly in love with God's word. I can almost tangibly feel him hold me and say to me, I am all you need, Janie. And whether or not you are with a man again in this lifetime, I am all the man you need. I am your kinsman redeemer. I am your groomsman. I am your man. The second way that God changed my perspective was through his people. As I tried to figure out my new reality, I had to take some time to heal and to get healthy. And that meant letting people serve me. And that's really hard because I like to serve others. But God surrounded me with people who love him and people who poured his love on me in just really tangible, unbelievable ways. They were so generous with their stories of how God healed their hearts through broken relationships. And there was one family who even let me come into their home and let me live with them for a little while. And it was there that I got to see how a healthy, godly family lives and what a vibrant marriage looks like. It was so wonderful. So God gave me that time for self-care. But there comes a point when self-care turns to self-pity and it's no longer productive. And God shifted my focus and allowed me to start focusing on serving others instead of self. 
And he gave me the moxie to be able to get out of my yoga pants and get out of the house and start serving others. And it was um, through that that he was able to start using my story and encouraging others with what he had done in my life. The third way that God helped shift my thinking was through professional counseling. Matt and I are huge believers in Christ-centered counseling, and we even tap into it in our, in our marriage for a tune-up sometimes or as we go through tough times, and it's always so helpful. So during my divorce, I saw a counselor, and he walked me through a process that was very centered around forgiveness. The first part of that was finding forgiveness for myself, being able to ask God to forgive me for my role in the breakdown of our marriage. The second part was finding forgiveness for him, for my ex-husband, and that was really, really hard. But you know what? We got there. And over time, God has healed my heart so completely, and I can honestly say that if he was to walk into this room right now, I could look at him with nothing but forgiveness and wish nothing but the best for him. The process of forgiveness really shifted my focus from helping me look at myself as a victor instead of a victim. A victim lives life based on circumstances. That God makes a mess, or I'm sorry, that God has a plan, and that man makes a mess, and that we're left to live in that mess. But that is straight from the devil. That way of thinking is a lie. My friend Sarah and I are always saying that the devil is a big fat liar. And like Chris said last week, we can tell the, the devil to shut up. Because a victor knows that God is in control. And a victor knows that God's going to take the junk of all of our humanness and turn it into something good. And if we are followers of Jesus Christ, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead is alive in us. And that God will either resuscitate our dead relationships or he will resuscitate death in us. But either way, he wins and we win. Sometimes I wonder what life would look like if it had turned out differently, if that marriage had healed or if I hadn't married that man to begin with. And I don't know the answers to those questions, but here's what I do know. When I think about how significant that season of life was to the miracle that my life is today, I know that God makes treasure out of trash, that he took my stupid choices, he took other stupid choices, and he redeemed those for his glory, and that he turns ashes into something beautiful. Our family gets the honor of sharing Matt with you guys, and through his teaching, you've caught some glimpses into our life, and you know a little bit of our story. But it would take me days and days to tell you about the miracles that God has worked in our lives. And and there's still problems, there's still rough roads, but God keeps doing the unexpected in my life. The story of how he even brought Matt and me together to begin with, and the story of the journey that brought us here to be in ministry with you amazing people, and the unbelievable story of two biological brothers who are from the other side of the world who have been adopted into our home, and I get the honor of them calling me mom. God blows my hair back. And so I share all that with you to say that God wants to do immeasurably more than you could ask or imagine with your life, with your relationships, with your marriage. He is writing a love story that is far more romantic and more passionate than anything Nicholas Sparks could write or that could be portrayed in a Fifty Shades movie. (laughs) He is writing the ultimate love story. It's the story of him rescuing us. 
And he doesn't want us to just sit and watch it happen. He wants us to play an active part and to let him take the lead.
Have you ever been to the theater? I don't mean the theater, I mean the theater. Darling, I have tickets to the theater, right? When that scene takes place, the scene of, of tragedy that happens to the hero, I mean, it just pulls us into the story. I mean, we are, we are right there with the victim. We're on the edge of our seats. Our hearts are moved. We're wiping tears away. And our eyes are fixed on the stage. But what is true in the theater is also true in life. That what we see from the stage, from our seats, is really only a small part of the stage. Actually, if you get to go back scene, back backstage, you see it's actually this enormous, enormous place. And on both sides of the stage is called the wings. And as we watch the drama unfold from our seats, we're only seeing what's taking place center stage. But what's taking place in the wings is there are dozens of people that you can't see getting things ready for the next scene. There's makeup artists and costume designers. There are their stagehands. They're getting actors prepared. They're moving props around. They're getting things ready for the next scene. And what I want to encourage you with today is that God is in the wings of your life. And he is so much bigger than the drama that is taking place right now. He's bigger. And you may be single and you're tired of being single. You think God has forgotten you. God is in the wings. You may be married right now and the the best, the, the betters have left the building and the worst just keep coming. And yes, the pain is real. Yes, the tears are real. But so is the God who is in the wings. You may be divorced. And there's this guilt that comes with it because you know that God hates divorce and he does. And you wonder, is there any hope for me, my future, my love story? God is in the wings. You may be married and everything's going great. Praise God. But in every one of our lives, seasons of famine come in. And you can today say, God, I know you are in the wings now and you're in the wings then. And I love as we go in through Ruth, the the verse one talks about it being a time of famine. But the last verse in Ruth one says that as they enter into Bethlehem, Naomi and Ruth, that it is now a season of harvest. The famine, the season of pain and tragedy is now done. And God is lifting the curtain for act two where he is going to show off how he's going to take the the ashes of this broken relationship, this failed romance, this tragedy, and he's going to make it into something beautiful. And if you're a follower of Christ, that is something we can cling onto, a hope we can have confidence in. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, it says, we know That for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. But there's a precursor there. Did you pick up on it? For those who love God. For those 
called according to his purpose. That is a promise for people who follow Jesus, to follow God. He is the author of the love story, but if you aren't following God, if you're taking that free will and going your own way, that promise is not for you. And he wants it to be, but you have to choose to follow him. And the way to follow him is through a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. To surrender to him. To repent of your sin. To come back home to him. To follow in obedience as you're baptized into him. And to follow in obedience in your life. And maybe that's your next step today as God wants to write that love story. Or maybe for you, whatever season of life that you're in is to seek out godly counsel. To tell you not what you want to hear, but what you need to hear. Shine the light of truth into your life. And for some of you, it may be Christian counseling. And we have counselors here on the back of your bulletin. We have their names and information. And I know people in our church who go to them who say they're amazing and, and, and they're great. You can go see them. You might seek out a minister in the church. Or maybe it's a small group and surrounding yourself with other followers of Christ being a part of a church that's going to lift up the word to you and say, this is what the Bible says and what God wants from your life. He wants something for it. So today, as we talk about this subject, I don't want anybody leaving without making a decision for him. There might be one that you make quietly in your seat. It may be one you need to be public about. So would you stand right now? We're going to sing those words. It is well. It is well with my soul. And if you have a decision to 